Super Talk Mississippi media production. He's the former president and publisher of the Sun-Herald, and now he's on the radio. Welcome to Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome to Coast View, the show that continues to celebrate the men and women who are making coastal Mississippi such a great place to live, work, and play. I hope you're doing well. Uh, last week, we had a great week, and uh, you know there are so many highlights of the week, but my conversation with, um, with um, Brad Patano and David Machado of the Machado Patano group was really one of the highlights of the week. The, the fact that two young men could start this, what, what became a multifaceted engineering and architecture firm located here in coastal Mississippi, just a great story. If you missed it, you can go to the Facebook page, the YouTube page, or your favorite podcast platform and take a listen to it. You know, as a former publisher of the Sun-Herald, um, I was honored, actually, to have this opportunity to, to be chairman of what, what is called the Local Knight Foundation effort. And uh, I got an opportunity to work with someone I had worked with as publisher for many years. His name is Alberto Ibarguen. He was the publisher of the Miami Herald and the El Nuevo Herald. And when he retired from those, that, that, uh, those positions, he became the chairman of the Knight Foundation. And he's been with the Knight Foundation for a, a number of years. And I would describe Alberto as a man on a mission. Uh, his and the Knight Foundation's work around local uh, journalism and restoring trust is incredibly important. In fact, it's so important that in my first week of Koshi last year, we've just celebrated the one-year anniversary. In my first week of, of Koshi, I asked Alberto to be part of the show, and we did an entire show around the Knight Foundation's commitment to coastal Mississippi and their work in, in, in journalism, and it was just a really, really good visit. You can actually go see that by doing a, uh, a search of Alberto Ibarguen uh, and Coast View on Facebook, and, and, and it will pop up, and you can take a look at it. Um, their work here in coastal Mississippi after Katrina was really important, and the Knight Nonprofit Center, that's how it got its name, the Knight Nonprofit Center on Seaway Road, is just one of the significant um, benefits of their involvement here in this community after Hurricane Katrina. Um, so the Knight Foundation's primary objective, though, is, is focused on monitoring a free press. They're, they're really working on trying to improve the situation, especially in the local communities, especially in this digital age that we're in today. Alberto believes deep in his soul, as most of us uh, do. Our guest that I'm going to introduce in a second does. I do because I came from, from this arena, spent a career there. Uh, but Alberto says it really nicely, and his, this is what he says. If you do not have a reliably informed citizenry, you will not have a functioning democracy. That's so important. Uh, the Knight Foundation understands and is really deeply concerned that the fact that local news and other democratic institutions in America today are really at a crisis moment. Um, Gallup and Knight, Gallup, the Gallup Surveying Group and Knight have published many uh, studies over the years, but they published recently a really sobering uh, finding about journalism. And essentially what they said was that like other democratic institutions, there is, there is growing vulnerable, they are growing more vulnerable to polarization and eroding trust. Now, let me point out right off the bat that trust in media and maybe a lack of trust has always sort of been part of the situation. But what we're all observing in this current moment is, a, is, a, is an eroding of the trust of news and information in ways that we've never experienced before. Uh, here's a little bit more about what the Knight Foundation said. 
For the 2020 American Views survey, Gallup and Knight polled more than 20,000 U.S. adults and found continued pessimism and further partisan entrenchment about how news media delivers on its democratic mandate for factual, trustworthy information. Many Americans feel the media's critical role of informing and holding those in power accountable or compromised by increasing bias. As such, Americans uh, have not only lost confidence in the ideal of an objective media, they believe news organizations actively support partisan divide. At the same time, Americans have, have not lost sight of the value of news. Strong majorities uphold the ideal that news media is fundamental to a healthy democracy. Uh, so what I have to say about all this, this is that, Houston, <laughs> we do have a problem. Um, the lack of trust in news, as I mentioned, has always been a challenge. But add to that the, the rise in biased cable news channels, a recent Pew study, uh, concluding that Americans are deeply concerned about what they call made-up news, or fake news, but made-up news, the social media dilemma, and the spread of misinformation, and the cre incredible partisan divide in this country. And it's easy to conclude what my friend Alberto Ibargan had to say about it. If you do not have a reliably informed citizenry, you will, have, you will not have a functioning democracy. We are in, in a news and free speech crisis moment in America. Few people deny this, and most don't have good answers as to what we're going to do about it. With that in mind, I've decided this morning to spend some time talking about this issue, and I've asked my dear friend James O'Byrne to join me. We worked together in New Orleans. He was, his, uh, he, he was the former vice president of innovation there. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning editor and writer. And today, for those who listen to the show on a regular basis, know that he's been on the show before. He lives in the countryside of France. So uh, let me uh, let me just turn to the page and invite James to be part of the conversation uh, from from his home in France. How you doing, James? Doing great, Ricky. Great to be with you again. It's good to good to see you. Technology still sometimes we have a better connection <laughs> with you than we have with people who are, you know, just a few miles from us. It's just amazing. Hey, I have a lot of notes. I have snow, curfew, pandemic, right? Are you writing much? You can, you can uh, take those in whatever order you want to, but I will say this, watching your Instagram post, um, boy, you live in a beautiful place, and when it snows there, it's literally a, a postcard, isn't it? Well, the snow is quite magical here. We live in a village that w that's been around since about 900 AD. Um, the house I'm sitting in right now was built in 1633. So, um, so, and everything's made out of old stone. And so, when it snows here, it's like being in the middle of a postcard. Um, and in particular, I love going out at night. Um, but, but it's a very small town. It's only about 300 people. Very, very tiny village. And so um, in the wintertime, the lights go out at 11 p.m. So I needed to snow before 11 to get out and take nighttime pictures in the snow. So, so, um, so we are, uh, we are there's a curfew there, though, right? Yes. Yeah, so the pandemic situation in France is that uh, we are not as bad as the U.K., uh, but we are sort of um, stuck on about... 25,000 new cases a day, and and uh, in our part of the in our part of France, there's about a 90% occupancy in the ICUs um, in the the uh, the Cote d'Or. But um, uh, we are at a 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. curfew, so we we're supposed to be home by six and stay until six. 
staying in until six part is not a problem for us. But uh, home by six can be tricky sometimes, although we break curfew if it's snowing and we want to walk outside after six. Uh, there's not a lot of gendarmes going through our town enforcing the rules, but it's designed really for the shops to close and for people not to gather. And I think it's what it's managed to do is keep us from exploding as these new uh, highly contagious variants come online. But it hasn't gotten us down to the numbers where we can we can uh, loosen up. And in fact, I think that there's a chance by Monday or Tuesday they may lock down again. Um, the truth is that our life doesn't really change much. We live out in the countryside. We walk out in the countryside. We never see anybody. So we're kind of in lockdown anyway. Um, but, uh, but for people who work and for people who have school-age kids, as you know, it's an incredible hardship. The restaurants have never opened for quite a few months. Uh, the bars, the restaurants, the gyms, those places have stayed closed. I think that's another reason why we've not, not exploded our numbers, but so we're kind of, you know, waiting to waiting to get jabbed just like everybody else is waiting for our vaccines. They're now fighting over supplies and everyone's, you know, trying to get in line. And, you know, this is going to be our role for the next three or four months, I think, no matter where you live. So you uh, you guys have decided to tackle French. How is that going? French is a tough language. You know, we thought we knew a little French when we got here, but uh, the, the more we the more we lived here, the less we do. Um, we do two hour lesson with a uh, with a French teacher um, who speaks very good English every week, and uh, she's a great teacher. We've made a lot of progress with her. Of course, right now our lessons are by Zoom. Um, we did in person lessons for a long time. The problem is that most of our French learning in happens when we take our 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 two-hour lesson and we go out into the world and talk to people and no one's going out in the world and talking to each other right now so and when they do talk to each other they all have a mask on right and what they're saying anyway because their their mouths are covered their faces are covered with a mask and so it's been it's been slow uh slow going in the last in the last 10 months um i think i my hope is and when we finally get free to go back out into the world again, that all of this learning and studying will spring to life, and we will we will make this huge leap to the next level of fluency. <laughs> but, uh, and finally, one of the things one of the things I notice about this town that you're in is that you and Paula have done a great job of uh, making friends, and there's a lot of community sense of things and all of that. Um, hey, why don't we do this? I, I was going to ask you about that. I don't want to rob your answer. Uh, when we come back, we'll finish talking a little bit more about what you're up to these days, and then we're going to shift gears. And for our audience, start to kind of rebuild the history of journalism in America and, and why we are at such a unique and cro- moment in our history, maybe at crossroads. But this is James O'Byrne. Uh, he is a Pulitzer Prize-winning editor and writer who lives in uh, France, a good friend to Coastview, a good friend of mine. When we come back, we can continue the conversation. Broadcasting safe and sound from the coastal Mississippi studios, this is Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk 103.1. Talking to the people that help make the coast such a unique place to live. This is Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome back to Coast View. We have uh, James O'Byrne, an old friend of mine, someone who I respect dearly for his journalistic, what we call journalistic chops. 
He's a smart guy. We're going to talk about sort of the news crisis we have today. And we were just visiting a little bit about he's in France and uh, the community that he's in. I have known just from his posts are there, there's a lot of you know, friendly people and you guys get together and sort of, you know, the community getting together. Some are from France, some are from other countries. It's just an interesting group of people. And a lot of ways it's got to remind you of New Orleans, the way people come together. It does. And we worried about it because not every small village in France is like this. I can tell you, we have friends who live in other small villages who talk about how lucky we are. But um, I think that uh, when we got here, we knew one of our main tasks was going to be to try to build a social infrastructure because we wouldn't know anybody. And uh, we would need help, all kinds of help, particularly early on when you can't make a phone call or make a doctor's appointment or talk to a mechanic. But uh, we, we were lucky to land in this very, very friendly place. It's very diverse. There are people from all over the world who live here, either part-time or full-time. And, um, and so we just landed in this really special place that has been, um, it has been a gift to us. And there's this thing called apéro or apertif, um, apéro on the wall, apéro sur le mur. And that it, it really does remind me of New Orleans. It's like stoop sitting in New Orleans back when I lived in, when we lived in New Orleans. It's just uh, everybody gets together on this sort of common wall on the main street in town brings bottles of wine and snacks and cheese to eat, and we sit around and, and talk about the day. Of course, we haven't done that in 10 months, but uh, but we'll start up again uh, just as soon as everybody gets uh, vaccinated, hopefully by fall. So are you getting to write much, James? You know, it should be a great time for writing because I'm trapped in the house all the time, but some, some, something about the pandemic that kind of uh, uh, takes the the urge out of me. And the other thing is that we tended to write about our travels and um, we don't travel anymore. So you're sort of sitting, you know, you're sitting in the house doing the same thing every day and it doesn't, uh, it doesn't sort of lead to a a, a desire to write a lot, but uh, it's just a, it's a poor, it's a poor excuse for, for not writing, but, uh, but I actually am editing. I'm a friend of a friend of mine is working on a book. And I've been editing a, a big chunk of that book, and that so that keeps me uh, keeps me busy on the on the word end of things, uh, keeps me engaged. Oh, that's good. That's good. So let's shift gears a bit. What, one of the things I want to do is remind people a little bit about the history of news. Now, some people know what you and I are going to talk about. Now, some people haven't really given it much thought. They just sort of take it for granted what we have today. But, but I think it, it really helps to kind of go back in time a little bit. And one of the things I would encourage people to do if they want to do some of their own homework and investigation, I think that Wikipedia does a really good job of looking at the history of news really around the world. It looks at American news. It looks at news and uh, trends in Europe, et cetera. And as you go through it, what you can find is they have hot links that take you to other things that you can read more about. So it's you know you can go as deep into it as you really want to go. But um, it doesn't surprise me that Wikipedia would have a really good uh, sort of telling of the story because so many journalists are contributing to the Wikipedia, um, you know, facts as it relates to journalism. But one of the one, you may have heard this this term called muckraking, and essentially what that was is it's kind of an early early iteration in the late 1800s of what we now know as investigative journalism or watchdog journalism, and. Um, and if you if you kind of go forward in time, there was this thing called the Brass Check. It was a book written by a guy by the name of Upton Sinclair. And uh, w- he wrote this. And what it ultimately led to is a code of ethics. Now, this code of ethics, as it relates to journalism, has evolved into something that's incredibly important. And in some respects, as James and I will talk about 
later in the conversation, the code of ethics in journalism and the ability for journalists to put more light on that, to create more transparency around that is one of the things I think we need to do. One of the things the, the Knight Foundation thinks we need to do to make to, so that people can understand the process more, because it is a the, the, the traditional news gathering effort and editing effort is a very rigorous process. And we'll talk more about that in just a second. But one of the things that he said, and uh, I think this really uh, this is pretty powerful, actually, this is uh, Upton Sinclair. He said this. It is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon his not understanding it. <laughs> so, James, when you hear that, I'm sure that all kinds of bells are going off in your head about that. But why is that an important statement? Well, I think that I think that, uh, that we, this is a particularly important time to understand how people are processing information and how people are are processing facts. I think that. Um, and one of the things that, things that the Knight Foundation would agree with is that we function best as a nation when we're arguing and debating over uh, uh, the same set of accepted facts. And if we can't get back to a place where that's how we're, we're having debates about what kind of country we want to be and, and what policies we believe will, will, will make us that kind of country, then we're going to have a lot of trouble functioning as, a, as an efficient democracy in the way that we have in the past. I think that the, one of the things that's interesting about journalism in America is that it emanates from a, a, a truly unique provision in the Constitution of the United States. Most people don't really realize this, but the, the First Amendment, which guarantees freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and freedom of the press specifically, is the only such statement of any constitution anywhere in the world. There's nowhere else in the world that says... Congress shall make no law restricting these things. And so uh, but the Founding Fathers understood very critically that, that a free and robust press was absolutely essential to the functioning of democracy. It's why it's codified in the same First Amendment, First Bill of Rights, right as religion and speech. And we hold religion and speech sacrosanct in this country, freedom of religion and freedom of speech. But somehow we've lost the connection to the third, uh, the third leg of that very, very important tripod that holds up our democracy, which is freedom of the press. So given that, it, it leads us to a place where we have a lot of problems. As you mentioned, I don't have any answers to how to solve these problems either. But it emanates from a place where, where this is really the only country on earth where you're not allowed to regulate the press. And I don't think we want to get to a place where we, we start regulating the press. Because then the, whoever is in power gets to decide which press gets regulated and which press doesn't. And that doesn't serve anyone's benefit in, 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 democ in a democracy. Um, so I, just, I think that's a really important historical point to remember, that our, that our press history, utterly different from, say, the, the press history in, in, in the UK or in Great Britain, um, emanates from that First Amendment that doesn't exist anywhere else. It doesn't. And, and when we talk about a free and independent press, what it means is that you must be willing to, to speak truth to power. Explain that. Well, the Founding Fathers understood that, uh, that, that what, what, the, what they lacked in, uh, under British rule was the ability to, uh, to, to speak freely about what, about what the problems were. So their expectation was that a free and vigorous press would hold 
in particular, hold the government to account for whatever was was being done day to day in in the government. And we see that play out um, every day, despite despite, um, you know, all the, the partisanship and all the division we have in the country right now. That the press continued to function in all its diversity and all of its it's all of its so uh, it's both its extremities and in and its center pieces. The entire press enterprise continued to function throughout these very difficult times, and I think it's I think it's to the credit of the founding fathers that they understood that that was really vital. That there had to be, as as uh, as as Alberto said, there has to be an informed populace um, for, for democracy to function well. And I think all of us, you and I both, and many other people are concerned that, that with the proliferation of, of more and more channels of information and the tendency to, to, um, of social media to create tribes, of, uh, tribes and silos of information that limit our sort of scope of understanding what's going on in the world, that we, are, we, we have more information and we're less informed that's possible. And I think it is. I think we have more and more information. But because we have so much information, we are less and less informed about the world. And that's a real danger to, to all of us, I think. In the next segment, we'll talk more about the role social media has played, the, 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 uh, the role that made up news has played and how it's easily shared and you know, why it was important for other states like Russia and, and, uh, and their efforts to use our own technology to divide us. We'll talk a little bit more about that in the next segment. But as you look at the evolution of news and news gathering in America, what you saw in the 1900s is, is major newspapers evolved, and then you know radio began to play its part, and then television began to grow, and then conglomerates started to kind of come along in the 20th century. We started to hear names like Ted Turner because of CNN and the work that he was doing there, and Rupert Mur- Murdoch. I mean, Rupert Murdoch, you know, we still hear his name today, uh, who has serious concerns about still, you know, whether you agree with him or not, about about free speech and why that's important and why we can't limit that. And I know you feel strongly about that as well. But what we'll do when we come back, we'll, uh, we'll kind of button it up because I want to, sh- I want to make a, an argument that newspapers were kind of the glue that kind of kept this together. And as the business model for newspapers began to fall apart, then you know more options started to come available, and that's part of the problem. So we'll continue the conversation with uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning editor and writer James O'Byrne after the break. Coast View on Super Talk 103.1 is brought to you by Allen Toyota. On I-10, exit 38 Gulfport. See all of the incredible inventory at allentoyota.com. And remember, when you think Toyota, think Allen Toyota. He's the former president and publisher of the Sun-Herald. And now he's on the radio. Welcome to Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome back to Coast View. As you know, if you're a regular listener to Coast View, we don't do heady issues on Coast View too often, but every now and then we're going to tackle it. And we get into a subject like news, uh, where I spent you know, the better part of my career. I have a passion for the role that news plays in helping to keep democracy viable. I've always felt that way, even after Katrina. Uh, for, for all of us, as we were rebuilding, the kind of information that the Sun-Herald was sharing, uh, the, kind of conversa- the kind of information that James's newspaper, the Times-Picayune at the time, was sharing in the community, were helping people make decisions about, 
Do they rebuild here? What do they need to, you know, how do they, how do they move on with their lives? Um, as, as city leaders were making decisions, we were trying to engage people to be part of that, that conversation in the post-Katrina world because it was really important to rebuilding in the local community. I think we were uniquely positioned, the coastal Mississippi and James's case, New Orleans and the region of New Orleans, were uniquely positioned in America to fully appreciate the role that, in, in our case, a newspaper plays in helping to keep the local democracy viable because Katrina and the effort that we were all involved in after Katrina. But you don't have to have a Katrina to really appreciate the, the, the role a local newspaper plays. But what we've seen over the past uh, 10 or 15 years, we've seen the business model for newspapers literally obliterated by digital media. And, uh, and so the way I would refer to it is that the, the local newspaper, in a lot of respects, is where a lot of people got their news and information. Now, they got it from other sources, too, but the local newspaper was sort of the glue that kept it all together. That They were the arbiter of all these debates and discussions and you know these different points of view, and they were really good at keeping editorial, and which is the, the opinion part of the newspaper, separate from the news part. And the process that they were involved in around news was a very rigorous process, really supported by very significant journalistic ethics. Um, the, the, the newspaper role cannot be understated, and not having that specific role these days is important to the overall conversation, isn't it, James? I think it's really vitally important. I think that um, not only were the news and opinion separated, but by and large, in communities, your community newspaper was talking about things that really weren't of a partisan nature. That the the kinds of things that communities were trying to do and the kinds of things that uh, reporting on city council meetings and zoning board meetings, and it was really sort of everyone together trying to figure out how to make the community in which we all lived a better place. And that was just essentially the daily conversation around getting the newspaper delivered on your front lawn, going out and reading it, talking to your neighbors about it. You know, you weren't talking right, left. Democrat, Republican, you were talking, you know, how do we make things better? How do we how do we live in a, make this place a better place to live for us, for our families, for our kids? And then now we as the decline of, of local news has progressed, what we've seen is we've moved those communities into the online space. And the online space has the exact opposite goal. The online space is really designed to to maximize our engagement, as they put it, which means to give us as much information that matches up with what we already believe and think as they possibly can and put us into these these silos that sort of kind of create these tribes. And these tribes are what are now dividing us. So I think that there's a, a correspondence between the decline of local news and how important it was to building real community, like the actual physical communities we live in, and then the, the rise of social media that is has created a different kind of community that does not necessarily always contribute to the, the health of a democracy. Yeah, I think, and, and as you and I have talked about before, that is exacerbated. This is the thing that was uh, brought out in the in the uh, documentary on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. And you and I spent a whole show talking about this, but it's it's exacerbated by the fact that they're collecting all this data about us. They're learning so much about us. And they are giving back to our news feeds through, via artificial intelligence news they think we want to see. In fact, based on the data that, that they're observing and collecting about us, that's what they're doing. So what it does then is it make it, you know, not, it's not just a tribe, but the psychological impact it has on people to, to, to suggest to them 
that everyone agrees with them. And that right. and that that's not a safe place to be, is it, James? It's not a safe place to be, and it also it also erodes any effort that somebody might make to to be a completely informed person. Like there are places you can go that have pretty good sort of ratings of different media outlets, and we all sort of know which media outlets tend to the right, which media outlets tend to the left, which media outlets sort of try to stay in the middle. So if you want to be an informed citizen and you want um, perspective from all sides, you want to make sure you're dabbling in different perspectives from different viewpoints. And if you live your life in social media, as many of us do, their goal is the exact opposite of that. So their goal is actually to, to make sure we are not fully informed, uh, challenged, um, dealing with the, the, the pros and cons of our arguments, refining our sort of belief system by looking at alternative views of, 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 uh, of what's going on and really trying to understand the world in that way. And so it's been kind of, it's had a kind of corrosive effect that I don't think, I don't think any of us really anticipated when, when these platforms still first, when initially came along, we saw all their potential benefit, but didn't really quite um, realize the, the potential downsides. And I think now there's a clearer idea of, of the dangers, even if we don't have a clear idea of what to do about them. It's so interesting. If people are interested, then go to the pointer.org web, website, pointer.org website, and they have a great media bias chart there to give you a sense of you know, what, what the various news outlets are and sort of what their leanings are. It's a really interesting, um, a really interesting chart. But in the Knight Gallup study that was done between November the 8th and uh, February the 16th, November the 8th, 2019, February 16th, uh, 2020, which is uh, essentially before the pandemic, um, what they what they discovered is that there was, I'm just going to read it directly from the report, low levels of public trust in the nation's polarized media environment have left open the possibility for dangerous false narratives to take root in all segments of society during this emergent crisis at a time when factual, trustworthy information is especially critical to public health and the future of our democracy. The striking trends documented here are a cause for concern. You know, when, when you do have so much of a lack of trust, then this, this, you know, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, this, uh, this, um, uh, you know, false news narrative that begins to, you know, to be to, to come to the surface and then get shared on social media because I agree with it, even though it's not true. Right. Um, man, that is a really dangerous place we find ourselves in, isn't it? Well, it's like Upton Sinclair said, I, 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 I agree with it because I, I need to I may need to believe in it. I mean, some of this has to do with a need to believe the world is a certain way, and now social media gives us the opportunity to magnify those things. And and uh, again, I think that I think that what we've seen is interesting because there's more sources of news and information now than probably ever in the history of our country or or of of civilization. Um, and yet, the more sources of information we have, the less we say we trust it. And I think what people are really saying is. I trust where I get my news, but I don't trust all those other sources because they're all lying. And again, I think that's driven a lot by our, our presence online in that online space amidst social media. And, and that's, been, that's been a real struggle for, for, our, for our democracy and for our society. 
But if you look at some of the work, AP had a good story about some work that's been done uh, around social media misinformation. And one of the charts that they, they gave to us, and it just shows the complication of this conversation because there's, gosh, I mean, just there, there's so many different aspects to it. But what, what, what this particular chart talked about was Russia-backed fake social media. And, and, and it really was able to quantify it. So in this case, it, sh- it talked about the rise from 2015 through 2016 into 2017. But in 2017, Russia placed 541 Facebook ads. They did 4,234 Facebook posts. They did 5,956 Instagram posts and 59,634 Twitter posts of false news, all designed to drive a wedge into America. Um, So we're not just talking about news that emanates from political parties or, you know, Efforts that are just d- 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 that are developed inside the United States to divide, but we've got all these other foreign actors that are that are also using our technology to divide. How does the average person sort through that, James? It's difficult, man. You know that's why they call it the World Wide Web. And I think that I think that it's really important to to vet the, the information you're getting online. If you're using the information you're getting online to actually make decisions about your life and your worldview. Then you need to you need to to vet the sources of those information, and regardless of 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 which media organization you're drawn to, you need to understand what's their what's their history, what's their motivation, what's their what is sort of their their where, where are they on the political spectrum, what are they after, and 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 also, I think that one of the ways that journalism failed um, early on is. We weren't as transparent as we should have been about how important it, it was uh, to, to how, how we went about gathering information. Why don't we do that? Because that transparency that you're alluding to now is one of the solutions. And so when we come back, we're going to talk about the, the news gathering machine and we'll continue the conversation as we go forward and why, why transparency is going to be important to the solution. Uh, this is James O'Byrne and we'll see you after this break. Broadcasting safe and sound from the coastal Mississippi studios, this is Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk 103.1. Talking to the people that help make the coast such a unique place to live. This is Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome back to Coast View. I have my friend, uh, Pulitzer Prize winning editor and writer from, actually, we work together in New Orleans, but he lives in France these days. Um, and we're having a conversation about the news crisis in America. And when we went to the break, what were, where, where you were headed, James, and I just want to kind of cue you up on this. Um, the, the, there are strict standards that exist in all of the newsrooms. There are ethics policies that exist. And um, what we've got to do a better job of, of lifting the veil and, and what, what the Knight Foundation refers to as radical transparency, that we need that so that people can understand the process. Therefore, if they do, they have a better, better understanding and trust in the outcome. Uh, talk about that a little bit more. Well, uh, you know, over the course of my career, I, I took, you know, thousands of calls from readers, as I know you did as well. And, uh, and what became clear in the, in the, in the, in the uh, process of trying to, to, under, to hear their concerns 
and their complaints and explain to them how news is made is that they didn't really have any idea about the standards and the and the, the level of care that exists in a professional news gathering operation, regardless of where you place it on the on the spectrum, that people are are engaged every day, every minute of every day, in trying to be as accurate and as balanced and as complete as they possibly can be. Do they always get there? No, they don't. Do they fall short a lot? Yeah, they do. But I think that if, if we had been more transparent about that process, we'd be in a better place today because people would understand what constitutes a news gathering operation versus what constitutes a video or a piece of information or, you know, a piece of Russian propaganda that shows up on their on their Instagram feed or their Facebook feed. And, and I think that uh, I think that if they understood that level of care, they would better be able to select a group of sources of information that they could consult every day to get an idea of the world. And I think one of the things we've stopped doing is we've stopped reading things we disagree with from people we don't agree with that we know are from people who have, who spend their lives thinking about this, you know, people who have a reputation and spend their lives thinking about things seriously and, and expressing their views on them. And we're just sort of taking the input or at the end of the pipe and is dumping all of this stuff on us. Some of it's really toxic and bad for us. And we don't even take any time to figure out, maybe I should get out of this pipe and be more selective about what I let pour over my head. Yeah, I made a post on my uh, personal Facebook page not long ago. Part of it's to, to try, I, I, I want to share the fact that, that I believe that there can be middle ground, that we can find a place again where we're debating the, the ideas again, and that the parties can start to distinguish themselves by policy and not by personality. And when I did, boy, I mean, it, oh my gosh, you won't believe the comments. Uh, it was I, just incredible. I believe them. My wife, Ann, said, Bubba, why do you do that? Why, why do you do that? I said, Ann, because I'm trying to get, it helps me in, in this show, actually. It helps me understand how deep the problem is. And what it did, James, is it elicited from them, them sharing with me, I cannot tell you how many conspiracy vi videos. I, and I watched right. some of them. They're terrifying. And they seem yeah, okay. so real. They seem so real. Like, I mean, one of them is that the Capitol insurgents was led by Antifa, Antifa and, and there's proof of that. And, you know, you know, I know people who were there and saw it with their own eyes. Unbelievable situation. Well, again, we're in the situation where we, we have to get back to a, a place where we agree on a, on a basic set of facts that we're going to debate over. Because that used to be the key to, to a robust uh, democracy where you had people on the right, people on the left, Republicans and Democrats, and they would, they would debate over the way the world was. And now with, this, with the, the ease of manipulation that exists, really preying on people in a lot of ways and manipulating their emotions, we no longer are in a place where we can be confident that we all agree on the basic set of facts. And we have to figure out a way to get back there if we're going to make progress as a country. I, I can't agree more. And the, the, the one good thing as it relates to the, the turmoil at the Capitol on that day was this, that uh, in terms of uh, federal and local investigation, it will be the most significant United States-wide investigation ever undertaken by the FBI and other intelligence agencies, et cetera. This is a big deal. And, um, and so it won't happen in a week. There's obviously there've been some arrests and we're already beginning to see what some of their defenses are going to be. But 
it's going to take months for this to play out, but there will be clarity about it. And the clarity <laughs> that will roll out of that is pretty much the, the narrative that we see in the trustworthy media today. And, uh, and what could have been avoided. And we'll learn more about that as we go through that. But the reality is that there are, there's, there's just so many opportunities because of technology and because people tend to be, as you pointed out, somewhat vulnerable. Um, there tends to be um, a lot of conspiracy that seems to be readily acceptable and ready, or we may say this, ready, readily accepted. And then they just go with it because that this is what they want to hear. This is what they want to hear. Hey, we got less than a minute. James, final thought, buddy. I guess I would say my final thought is that what you're talking about, I think, is driven by people who prey on fear rather than prey on um, positivity and, and on and on opportunity. And I think that if we can get less afraid and more hopeful, then we'll be in a better place as a country. What an amazingly positive thing to end on. I, I talk about that all the time, the, that we should keep you take the take the negative people out of our lives and stay focused on positivity. And there's a lot of wise advice you've given. I hope people will take it and uh, and and fill their mind with you know, both sides, <laughs> so they, they can make good decisions based on facts. So anyway, James O'Byrne, it's been a pleasure. I hope things will go continue to go well for you in France, and you can get out and enjoy your community and enjoy life. And we'll talk to you again soon, buddy. An enjoyable conversation as always, Ricky. Enjoyed it. Thank you, James. I'll see you later, and we'll see you tomorrow. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.